You are listening to South by Southwest Sessions. Since the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we've all searched for sources of truth and constancy and science fact. And I am delighted to have the opportunity to speak with one of my true North stars, Dr. Michael Osterholm from the great SIDRAP, that's the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And the first quote from 2012 he gave us was the following to the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He said, dating back to Hippocrates, influenza, influenza, has been one of the lion kings of infectious diseases. Dr. Osterholm has a way of making data and concepts accessible, like using that lion king phrase. And he's my calming voice in a storm. So I want to welcome Dr. Osterholm to the South by Southwest conversation on the new reality. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm actually very honored and humbled to be here with you and happy to share what we can. Uh, in terms of the new reality and looking at the COVID-19 situation. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, you know I am too. So first, uh, we're going back to an Osterholm quote from very recently, 2020, uh, in December. You were talking with CBS News, and you said, the challenge we have right now is the last mile and the last inch. The last mile meaning getting COVID vaccines out to the people who need it. And right now, state and local health departments have no resources to do this. So we're here at South by Southwest, which as I said, has a film festival and getting vaccines all over the country has been compared to like a Hunger Games situation. Um, Hunger Games, the COVID edition. So here in the new reality, Dr. Osterholm, how do we fix the last mile and the last inch? Well, I'm happy to report, actually, it is getting better. Um, I did a podcast in early December before the vaccines were being dis uh, sent out from the Operation Warp Speed activity uh, as part of the uh, previous administration. And let me just make a comment about what happened under Operation Warp Speed. Uh, this was a very innovative and, frankly, comprehensive effort to move uh, a virus as we know it to a vaccine to an evaluated vaccine, to a manufactured vaccine, and then basically sent out to the states. That really was remarkable. And I'll come back to that in a moment about the issue of the name. But the challenge we had is the vaccine then just literally got dumped in the states. And there had not been any financial support to plan for how to move this vaccine into those who most needed it. On top of that, uh, not only did the state health departments and local health departments not have resources, but that the federal government changed the ground rules at the last moment when they had been telescoping us to the fact that it was probably going to be essential workers uh, that were going to get the vaccine first. And then all of a sudden changed it to healthcare workers and those living in long-term care. So some of the planning that was done no longer was applicable for this moment. So that's created a challenge, and uh, the electronic systems to collect people's names, to get them signed up, none of that really existed in the way that we needed it. So that was the last mile. That was a real challenge. Now that is changing. Still, the rig challenge is not having enough vaccine for the people who want it. And then there's a second problem that's developing, and that really goes to the issue of the last inch. When I said that in early December, I was thinking about the fact that a vaccine is only a vaccine. 
it doesn't become significant until it becomes a vaccination, until it's in your arm, that last inch of the needle into your arm. And we know that there are a number of people today that want this vaccine and there's not enough to go around. But when we do meet the needs of that group, what we're really concerned about is that there are a number of people who won't take the vaccine, which could have big impacts in our communities in terms of ongoing transmission. For example, we have data now showing anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of healthcare workers are saying, well, you know, let me wait uh, a few months and see what the safety looks like on these vaccines. We see in the communities of color, uh, particularly in the black male population, uh, great hesitancy to take this vaccine. And yet some of the highest rates of COVID-19 are in that group. And this is all because of the fact that when Operation Warp Speed started, it had a horrible name. It made it sound like somehow safety was being uh, forgotten with the idea of speed or some you know, Star Wars-like event. Then on top of it, the military were involved from a logistics standpoint, but this appeared to be a military vaccine. And then, of course, it was right around the election that there was a lot of debate about should the vaccine come out now or not. And people thought that there was actually a political thumb on the approval scale uh, when there really wasn't. So all of that right there gave it a really, really bad name. But then on top of it, we're now using a new technology to deliver the vaccine, a technology that actually has been studied for many years and one that I think is really a, a, a major advance called messenger RNA, mRNA vaccines, which does use genetic material to help the piece of material we want your body to respond to to get into the human body and, and make that happen. It doesn't have any impact on your genes. It doesn't have any impact on any of your aspects of your own genetics. Yet the uh, issues right now uh, out there about misrepresentation, disinformation about this has scared a lot of people. So my big concern is after we get this initial uh, rush of vaccine out for all the people that want it, we're going to be sitting here saying, now, wait a minute, we've got a lot of vaccine. Where are our customers? Where are the people? So we've got a lot of work to do. To, to make sure that we get as many people in this country, and for that matter, around the world vaccinated. Yeah, well, now I think people listening in can see why Dr. Osterholm is a clear voice here, uh, dispelling some myths that really need to be debunked. So we've, we've talked for the first few minutes about some of the clinical virus uh, and logistical issues. So confounding all of that, complicating the last mile, and the last inch is that the pandemic's affecting so many other aspects of our lives uh, besides the, the clinical, physical. The, the, there's the economy, of course, there are social and civil issues that have come out looking at, uh, as you talked about, vaccine hesitancy and the black male and black general, black community uh, for justifiable reasons of history uh, and social determinants of health. So you were quoted in May 2018, this is a prescient man, you said a pandemic would be the least of our problems. It would be all the collateral damage we'd have to deal with and we're doing nothing. And then you noted it's a different world today. We can't do public health the way we did it 20, 30, 40 years ago. You said public health is a never ending investment need. And that's what I wanna focus on now because we have a uh, new administration in Washington and a, a new secretary of the treasury, Janet Yellen, who's talking about going big on investment in general. So does America have the 
appetite to go big on public health investment, do you think? You've been in this game a long time. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you think about allocation of investment for public health. Well, uh, thank you for actually doing a very uh, good job of laying out the topic for me. You did a lot of my work. Uh, let me just say that uh, what you've hit upon is one of those issues that you kind of scratch your head sometimes and say, you know, why are we so penny wise and pound foolish? If you look at any of the major economists today in this country, they'll tell you that if we can do anything to bring this pandemic under control, I don't care how many billions of dollars it costs, do it, because in fact, it'll be cost savings. That's what public health is about. You know, less than 3% of the U.S. budget for health goes to public health, preventing problems from ever happening. You know, I say over and over again, and when I was a state epidemiologist at the Minnesota Department of Health, I used to tell our staff, you know, the job that you do here every day is the reason why a mom or a dad gets to kiss their kid goodnight tonight and tuck him into bed. That child is there because of something you did. No one will know it. They won't know it. You won't know it. But what you do, whether it's safe food, safe water, it's vaccinations, all these things that we do that basically prevent problems from happening. And now I think we're beginning to understand that with this particular pandemic. The other thing that we're really beginning to understand is the fact that an illness is much more than that, as you very kindly stated from one of my previous quotes. I was quoted recently in The Atlantic saying that we're trying to get through this pandemic with vaccines, but without exploring our soul. I can't tell you how much I think this pandemic has opened up our souls. First of all, mental health. Over the last year, we all have suffered miserably, some much, much more. Today, we have to understand the mental health toll that that has taken on us and, and start right up front with our healthcare workers who have been there day after day after day after day trying to save lives. You know, just a few months ago, I had an intensive care physician, uh, one of those real kind of you call macho guys, uh, who had served in the military, who had done a number of tours of duty in the war zones of the, of the Middle East and Afghanistan. And on this particular evening's telephone call I had with him, he broke down because he said, I can't do this anymore. I'm broken. I can't do this. And he explained to me how just that very day he had had the four different occasions use his iPad to let family members outside the hospital watch their loved one die. He said, I can't do this anymore. Well, that is happening all over. One out of eight American families right now are food deprived. Financially, people have been ruined. Businesses have been ruined. Um, I take it uh, with some real uh, angst when I hear people say to me, well, it's just old people dying. You know, when did life somehow lose its quality or its character or its value because somebody was old? Um, when I look at the issue of racial disparities, and the fact that this has disproportionately affected our communities of color, the BIPOC community. Why? Because there are many of our essential workers. First of all, they had to go to work so you and I could sit on Zoom or that we could get our food through the grocery stores. In addition, their living conditions. How do you tell somebody to basically quarantine when you're a single mom living with your mother and three young kids in a one-bedroom apartment just trying to keep food on the table and a roof over your head, and now you lost your job at the restaurant because they had to close. So I think one of the issues that we're also learning is that public health 
when it is done well, preventing these kinds of situations from occurring, actually has a spillover into so many other parts of our lives that we don't even think about. All the things I just talked about, think how they might be different today if this pandemic had been controlled right from the start, if it hadn't happened like it did. And so I think this is a very important message today. And so hopefully we will see investments in public health in the future, new vaccines, uh, new ways to basically control these diseases. How do we do testing better? All those things, if we pay for them now, it'll be much cheaper than we have to pay for them later during a pandemic. So I, I really appreciate you asking this question. I think it's such an important one that if there's any lessons to be learned from this pandemic, it's that we don't want to do this again like this. All amazing points and important for us to think about as we think about turning to your third quote I want to bring up, which is a quote about a marathon, not a sprint. So we've talked about the fiscal investment or capital investment. Are we, do we have the stomach to spend on public health? But we've also invested last year uh, in terms of time and mental health, as you point out. So you said to the Post, Washington Post, last April, just a couple months into this, as a country, we're unprepared, not just logistically, but mentally, for the next phase of COVID. The way you pre prepare people for a sprint and a marathon are very different. And as a country, we're utterly unprepared. Uh, and then you compared, as we were, we were talking about earlier off camera, um, you compared uh, the pandemic to a forest fire and more recently to a, cat, a Category 5 hurricane. So here we are in the hurricane. And as you've been talking about very recently, the variants. Uh, we're in the midst of trying to get vaccinations into people. We have vaccination hesitancy and we're in a hurricane. So can you talk to us about what this new reality will be over the next few months? Uh, you know, let me just start by uh, laying out what I think has been a critical uh, lack of understanding right now and what I call shifting baselines. Uh, when you think back on this pandemic, when it began, you look at the really first moments when I think people begin to understand its significance was in April, when at that time New York was a house on fire. We saw increased cases in Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta, New Orleans, uh, in Seattle, in parts of Southern California. But most of the country really kind of yawned and said, what's this all about? We got to 32,000 cases a day in mid-April. And everybody said, boy, this is as bad as it's going to get. This is terrible. Then we did all those things to try to reduce cases, the distancing, things shut down. We only got down to 20,000. I say only. It wasn't like we drove this to zero. But we had 20,000 cases on Memorial Day. Well, then pandemic fatigue, that situation where I'm kind of done with it. I'm done. I don't know if the virus is, but I'm done. And then pandemic anger that piece of society that doesn't believe the pandemic is real and it's just all a political uh, kind of event. And when that happened, uh, together with just people doing their daily lives, we saw from Southern California to Southern uh, Georgia into South Carolina, uh, a house on fire event in July. These states were dramatically impacted. And guess what happened? We got to 70,000 cases a day in late July, much higher than the 32,000 before. But then we drove that number back down and we got it down to about 26 to 28,000 cases by Labor Day. 
And many of us could see this coming. In fact, right around Labor Day, I was publicly saying that we're likely to see 200,000 cases by Thanksgiving. No one, no one wanted to hear that or believe that. Well, guess what happened? We went back into a, a, a tailspin, the upper Midwest in particular. The first week of November, we had 200,000 cases a day reported in the United States. Then we got a little better for a while. The, north, the, the northern central states started to slow down. Numbers came down to 160,000. People said, aha, we're now at a new lower base. Remember when the base used to be 20,000 for the lower base? Well, we're now at 160,000. Guess what happened? By December 8th, we were back up to 200,000 cases. By January 8th, we were back up to 300,000 cases. Now, remember that baseline of 32,000 cases seemed unbelievable? We could all argue, wow, I wish we were there. We look at where we're at today. Today, we're sitting at about 130,000 cases a day. We're still talking about 3,500 deaths a day, and we still have 95,000 people hospitalized. And guess what? The variants, those new viruses we just talked about, uh, where they have the mutations occurring, where they can do one of three things or all of the three things. One, be much more transmissible, much higher rates of transmission in the community. Two, they can cause much more severe illness. Or three, we even have ones now that can evade the immune protection of natural infection or vaccines. And some of the variants contain all three of those. We have a variant right now circulating widely in the United States. It's just started to pick up. It's the UK variant. It's what we've seen in England throughout many countries now in the uh, European area as well as the Middle East. And this has wrecked havoc. If you look at in London, for example, alone, before they were able to bring this under control with a complete lockdown, a complete lockdown, their hospitalization rate actually the number that they had would have been equivalent here in the United States if we actually had had 190,000 individuals hospitalized every day, 60,000 more than we were at our peak, which was then a tragedy. Um, this is on the horizon. So when you raise the issue about the hurricane, where I see us right now, you and I are sitting on the beach with some colleagues, friends, neighbors, whatever, and it's a crystal blue sky up there. You know, the waves are coming in from the ocean very gently. The wind is blowing very, very softly. It's 80 degrees. Uh, we're having a great time. And I'm sitting there saying, we got to evacuate. We got to evacuate. And people look at me like, what? what? What they can't understand is that Category 5 hurricane is 450 miles offshore and is coming in. I worry very much that what we're going to see happen uh, in the next 6 to 12 weeks will be this uh, UK variant taking off here in this country. And again, remember the baselines. We're starting from a much higher spot now. You know, we're not falling off the curb now, we're falling off the roof. And so if we see a big burst in cases, on top of already a high baseline, we've got some tough days ahead. Now the vaccines are coming, they're here. And I mentioned earlier that some of the variants may actually defeat some of the protection from the vaccine. Fortunately, we've not had any evidence yet in this country that we're seeing widespread of either of those variants that do that. So we're now basically trying to get as many people vaccinated uh, as soon as we can so we have fewer people that would be impacted by these new variants should they take off. So you're absolutely right uh, in terms of trying to understand the future is often very, very difficult. 
but to ignore it is also at our own peril. I have one last quote for you, and you've often talked about love, but you said to meet the press in October about love, you said this is our COVID year, talking about 2020. Let's accept it. It's not like last year, and it's not hopefully going to be like next year now. So if you really love the people that you have in your family, think through this and do them the greatest gift of all, and that is distance yourself this year and don't expose them. The folks at South by Southwest, Dr. Osterholm, are a call to action group of makers and doers. So I know they'll want to know from you, what is the call to action for each of us to take on to help make this better? What can each of us do um, for each other, for health, for health citizenship to come through this uh, in a loving kind of a way? Well, thank you for that opportunity because it is an opportunity to say, I think there are two things you can do. Number one, be kind. In the Ostrom update, I emphasize that every week. We need an epidemic of kindness right now because it is by far one of the most powerful tools we have in dealing with this virus. Uh, that means doing things that you wouldn't normally think about doing. Be kind to yourself. Uh, and, and we are seeing a pandemic of kindness right now that is not making the virus go away, but it makes living with it a better place. And so I, I can't say that. And it may sound kind of funny to you. You may kind of smirk at who's this guy, you know, but I'm telling you, I've had more people say to me, you know, it's gotten, they've gotten into a new a groove, a new way of looking at life. Every day I say, find one way you can be kind to people. You know, it may not even be near people, but what you do, how you do it, the notes you send, what you don't say and what you do say. So be kind. The second thing I would say is the fact that love those who are around you. And if they're not protected, don't put them in harm's way. I have had far, far, far too many situations of families getting together out of pressure. Because even though some of the family didn't want to get together because of the fear of infecting grandma or grandpa or mom or dad, but it was an anniversary, it was their birthday, it was something. Therefore, it was compelling. And it's very compelling when three weeks later one of them dies because somebody unknowingly brought the virus home. And, you know, this is that COVID year. Again, it's not going to be like next year. We hope so very much. And so the ultimate love in some cases is doing hard love for yourself, of avoiding that contact. Now, if you can basically quarantine yourself for 10 days or if you've had two doses of vaccine, any of those things, then get together. We'll get through this. Vaccines are coming. I wish there was more of it here now than there is, but they're coming. And I think that's the message of hope and that we're not going to let this virus take us on. Let me just conclude by a story I told opening last week's podcast. It was about the Battle of the Bulge, a very famous battle in Europe that occurred some months after the D-Day invasion in which American troops were surrounded at Bastogne in Belgium. And uh, they were basically in pretty bad shape. Uh, the German commander sent a note demanding that they surrender and that they do it immediately or they would be under immediate fire and, of course, potentially losing many lives. Uh, General McAuliffe, who got the message, looked at it and said, nuts, nuts. And that's what they sent back to the Germans who couldn't figure out at first what it was. And that was his way of saying, this is crazy, I'm not going to. And they held out. Three days later, George Patton 
and his uh, tank battalion came, rescued them, and and that's the story that uh, allowed uh, uh, us to move forward and end the World War II. My message to you is nuts to the virus, nuts to the virus. We're not going to give in. And I think that's the message we all want to take away. I love that. Dr. Osterholm, thank you so much for so sharing much. your wisdom. And please, everyone, subscribe to the Osterholm uh, update COVID-19. I got no skin in that game, but it'll be worth your while. <laughs> Dr. Osterholm, be well. And everyone, go forward, be safe, be well, and be loving.